Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? And since it's summertime when the weather is high and you can reach right up and touch the sky, I figure I could talk about a fun story about invention and innovation, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart because these things came out right when I was in high school and I thought they were amazing. I want to talk about the Super Soaker line of water guns. And not just because that's a toy that has a special place in my heart because I I loved these things when I was a kid, but also because it comes from one heck of a pedigree because that technology was the brainchild of a rocket scientist, a NASA engineer. That engineer would be Lonnie Johnson, a man who has countless incredible achievements to his name. He's got more than 100 patents to his name. Admittedly, the Super Soaker bit frequently grabs attention first, although when you look at his resume, you think, how did this, how was this the lead? How was that the headline? 
Lonnie Johnson was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1949. And I want to mention this right off the bat. Lonnie Johnson's black. And I say that because we have to take into account that along the way, he was facing massive challenges in the form of systemic racism. So his achievements are incredible. And you, on top of that, you have to put into, uh, take into account rather, this issue of racism. Uh, you know, he, he was really facing some enormous obstacles. Well, Lonnie's father was a veteran of World War II and worked as a civilian driver at an Air Force base in Mobile, Alabama. And his mother worked in a laundry and as a nurse's aide. So when he was a kid, Lonnie became interested in learning how stuff works. I can identify with that. His father, on top of being a driver, was also kind of a DIY kind of fella. It was mostly out of necessity, learning how to fix things and occasionally you know, doing odd jobs and stuff. And he passed down this DIY you know, philosophy to his children. And Lonnie really took that to heart. And sometimes his heart would overrule his head, like the time he was 13 and decided to take an engine out of a lawnmower and connect it to a go-kart he had made out of scraps and then went joyriding down the highway. Police had to ask him to pull over. Probably not the safest activity for a 13-year-old to pursue, but it was a demonstration of his, uh, his love of engineering. And his family told lots of stories of Lonnie taking stuff apart to learn how it worked. And of course, you know, it was the classic story that he wasn't always able to put it back together again. So sometimes when Lonnie got his hands on something, that was the last time that something was going to work. But he would learn in the process. Uh, they also told stories about the time he tried to make homemade rocket fuel and nearly set his family's house on fire. He would go to Williamson High School, and that was an all-black high school because this was still in the days of segregation here in the South. You know, you you had class, schools that were whites only and schools that were blacks only, and so he went to an all-black high school. In 1968, he and his school entered a science fair competition that was held at the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. And his school was the only black school that was in attendance at the fair. And he, Johnson, had created a, a kind of robot. He called it the Linux. And it was an air-powered device. Again, made out of scrap materials, like he had raided junkyards and stuff and grabbed things that would be helpful and made this robot and it took home first prize. Now, reportedly, many at the university were not thrilled that the top prize was going to a black student. Johnson earned a scholarship to attend the Tuskegee University, and there he earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. He got that degree in 1973. Then he pursued postgraduate studies at Tuskegee, and he earned a master's degree in nuclear engineering in 1975. So the guy who, who created the super soaker has a master's in nuclear engineering. That's a big old wowza for you, right? Like you wouldn't expect that when you pick up a toy, that this was created by a nuclear engineer. Now for a short while after he graduated from his uh, master's degree, Lonnie Johnson worked as a research engineer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. That 
was one of the facilities that was involved during the Manhattan Project. It was established as part of the Manhattan Project, in fact. This was when the United States was first developing the atomic bomb during World War II. Of course, that would be ancient history by the time Lonnie Johnson had joined the team, but Oak Ridge continues to pioneer research in things like nuclear physics, including nuclear fusion and an attempt to build a working nuclear fusion reactor, which if we ever manage to do one that actually creates a sustainable fusion reaction, uh, that would be transformative for our energy needs. But, you know, we have to get there first. Well, Johnson would then join the Air Force after that, and he was assigned to head the Space Nuclear Power Safety Section at the Air Force Weapons Laboratory. He stayed there until 1979, and at that point he joined NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and served as a senior systems engineer. He began work on the Galileo project, so he was he was part of the Galileo project team. Uh, Galileo was a probe that we sent to study Jupiter and its moons. Uh, that project would ultimately be monumentally successful from a scientific perspective. Now, Johnson worked on this early on in the program. He would not be part of that team when the probe would uh, ultimately launch later in the 1980s, but he did work on it early on. In 1982, uh, Lonnie Johnson would actually leave NASA and return to the Air Force, and he was now an Advanced Space Systems Requirements Officer at the Strategic Air Command Headquarters. He would also serve as the chief of the data management branch of Strategic Air Command Test and Evaluation Squadron at Edwards Air Force Base. He was one of the engineers who would also work on the development of the Stealth Bomber, which was you know, a super secret project at the time. Uh, Johnson actually talked about how he wouldn't even be able to tell his wife what he was working on at the time because it was classified as top secret. He would pop back over to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1987 to work on the Cassini project. Cassini was a probe that we sent to study Saturn. And he was also at work on a project that would unexpectedly evolve into the Super Soaker. Now, that was something that he had been kind of working on on and off for several years. You see, Lonnie Johnson did not set out to make a new kind of water gun. You know, a, a water gun that would leave those little old squirt guns far behind. He wasn't trying to create a weapon of mass saturation. It was not his dream to grant battlefield superiority to the kid who could go out and buy a water gun capable of shooting streams of water further than any other on the market. Lonnie Johnson was trying to do something else entirely. He was trying to solve a very tricky problem. He wanted to create a heat pump that used water instead of Freon as a refrigerant. And he started on this work way back in the early 1980s. So he, he did this while he was at the Air Force working on the stealth bomber. So he couldn't talk about the stealth bomber work, but he could talk about his sort of personal project, which was trying to suss out if there would be a way to make a working heat pump, an effective heat pump, using water. So we're going to talk about heat pumps and how they work and why it was important to try and find an alternative to Freon so that we can have an understanding of what it was that was fueling his innovation and ultimately would spawn the super soaker. But before we get to all of that, 
Let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about heat pumps. Uh, now, the heat pumps I'm talking about here, they work in a way that's similar to an air conditioner. In fact, there are several elements in heat pumps that are identical to things you would find in an air conditioner, except a heat pump can potentially transfer heat inside a building or outside a building. Thus, it can 
either heat or cool a building using one system. Air conditioners are not like that. They are a one-way thing, right? They pull heat out of a building and they bring cool air in, but that's it. You can't you can't heat a building with an air conditioner. You need a separate system. You need a furnace. So a heat pump can do both. And uh, technically, a heat pump can also be a one-way type of deal. It could also be like an air conditioner if, or it could be like a, a furnace if you wanted, uh, where it could not reverse. The reverse is only made possible by using a reversing valve. Uh, but that's the thing, is that a heat pump can do that. You can have a, a reversing valve installed within the system and you change where the heat is being pumped. Really, that's all it is. It's it's all a heat transfer system. It transfers heat from one location to another. When you're heating a building, it means you're taking heat from outside and bringing it inside. And when you're cooling a building, you're taking the heat from inside and you're putting it outside. That's really all there is to it. But how does it do that? Well, I could technically do a full episode about this, but I'll try and keep it short. It's also a little tricky to talk about when you don't have visual aids, but we're going to do our best. So your typical air-to-air heat pump solution, there are a lot of different types of heat pumps. We'll talk about air-to-air because one, they're the most common, and two, they're really simple. But your your basic air-to-air heat pump solution consists of a pair of heat exchangers. You have one heat exchanger that's outdoors, and you have one heat exchanger that's indoors. These are connected via pipes and a reversing valve that allows the flow to reverse directions. And there's a compressor, and there's also some other valves, expansion valves, that control the flow of refrigerant in the system and bypasses for those expansion valves. That's also important. So I'll talk about expansion valve one and two for the the sake of this description so that you can understand why they exist. And really, you only need two if you do have a reversing heat pump system. If it's just going in one direction, you just need one expansion pump and that's it. You don't even have to have a bypass. It's only if you want to both heat and cool a building with a heat pump that you would need two of them. So Let's start with the compressor, because really that's where the the journey begins. And the compressor's job is to compress the refrigerant that's flowing through the system. Now, compressing a fluid, uh, in this case, it's, it's essentially a vapor, it causes not just the pressure to increase, but it also causes the temperature of that fluid to increase. So what you end up with is a superheated vapor under very high pressure, and you allow that to travel through the lines out from the compressor. And let's say in this case, it's the winter and we want to heat the inside of our house. So we would have a system set so that the hot high pressure vapor travels to the indoor heat exchanger. Now, this is essentially coils of tubing made out of a material that conducts heat efficiently, like copper, right? So this super high pressure, very hot vapor goes through these coils of tubing. Behind that coil of tubing, you have a fan. The fan blows cooler air across these hot coils, and that carries some of that thermal energy, some of that heat away from the coils. That's what's providing the heat to the house. 
That's where the warm air is coming out of the vents. It's because that air was blown across these very hot coils and some of that heat transferred to the air and thus is warming your house. So the cool air starts to pull away some of that thermal energy. Well, as the thermal energy goes down inside this this fluid, then the fluid itself begins to condense. It begins to convert from gas to liquid. And it's still hot. It's still at a high pressure. It's just not quite as high a pressure as it was when it entered into the heat exchanger, and it's not quite as hot as it was. But this heated liquid will bypass expansion valve number one. So it goes around this valve. It doesn't go through it. Uh, the expansion valve, if you can think of it as, as pointing in a direction, it's pointing back the way this liquid has come. So it bypasses this valve. Then it goes through expansion valve number two that's pointed in the opposite way. Now, an expansion valve allows this pressurized liquid to expand, for its volume to expand. Well, that means that the pressure of the liquid drops suddenly, as does its temperature. That, that's the relationship here. When you've got high pressure, you've got high temperature. When you've got low pressure, you've got low temperature. So this expansion valve allows for the rapid expansion of this liquid into a, a kind of a mixture of liquid and vapor that is much cooler in temperature. This mixture then passes through the coils in the outdoor heat exchanger that's just blowing ambient air across the coils. Well, the the temperature of the refrigerant has now dropped so low that even in the wintertime, the air outside is typically warmer than the refrigerant is. Uh, so it can be very cold outside and still be warm enough to warm up the refrigerant quite a bit. And so a little bit of thermal energy gets transferred into this fluid. The refrigerant then brings along some of that thermal energy and it gets pumped back through the reversing valve to go back into the compressor. And then the whole thing starts up again, right? The compressor compresses this mixture of, of vapor and liquid that's cooler into a high pressure vapor that is very high temperature and puts it back through the system again. Now, if you wanted to cool your house, this, this, this whole system moves in reverse. So the compressor still compresses the refrigerant, still makes it very hot, but now it goes to the outdoor heat exchanger, which takes away some of that thermal energy and allows the superheated high-pressure vapor to condense into slightly less hot and slightly less pressurized liquid. That then bypasses expansion valve two. It goes to expansion valve one, expands into the very low-pressure, low-temperature mixture of vapor and, and liquid, moves through the indoor heat exchanger, which is blowing warm air across these coils. The coils are very, very cold, so then you get cool air blowing into your house. And then the fluid continues on back to the compressor. Now, the reason I give all that is because, you know, you, you have to understand those basic pieces. But why was... Johnson working on an improvement or attempting to create an improved heat bump. Well, it's because the typical heat bump was using Freon as the refrigerant. Now, Freon is technically called dichlorodifluoromethane. And this stuff has the useful trait of having a boiling point that's all the way down to minus 29.8 Celsius or minus 21.64 Fahrenheit. Now, remember, like, 
Water's got a boiling point of 100 degrees Celsius, or 212 Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot. But Freon, it'll boil off into a gas at negative 29.8 Celsius. So you see that even in cold winters, there's still enough heat in the ambient air to boil off the refrigerant in the heat exchanger, unless you're in like a super duper cold environment where you would be kind of stuck. Uh, the heat pump would not be a big help. However, Freon has some drawbacks. Now, a big drawback is that it contributes to environmental damage. It can, it, it is a, a chemical that when released into the atmosphere can do massive damage to the ozone layer. Now, this was such a concern in the 1990s that countries agreed to ban the manufacture of Freon. First, developed nations all agreed to stop manufacturing Freon in the mid-90s. Uh, but for developing countries, it was considered to be kind of, I mean, it's it's looked on as a complicated situation, right? You You have a country that's on its way toward development telling it, hey, you can't benefit from the same stuff that we benefited from because it turns out that's harmful. That's a complicated thing. So those countries actually had until 2010 to stop making Freon. These days, we still use Freon, but only in very specific use cases, like as a fire retardant in like submarines or aircraft. So Lonnie Johnson wanted to create a new kind of heat pump that would just use plain old water as a refrigerant instead of Freon. So there was this growing concern about Freon and similar chemicals and their environmental impact, but this was before countries had decided to ban the stuff. And so really, Johnson was just trying to think of an alternative that would be you know, practical and uh, you know, have less of an environmental impact. And water would definitely fit the bill if you could make it work. So he's kind of thinking this through and creating a system. And part of that meant that he machined his own nozzles. So he used machining equipment to make nozzles for his heat pump design. And one day, while testing out his nozzles in his bathroom, he shot a tight stream of water clear across the bathroom in a very focused stream. And that got him to thinking about water guns. Okay, I'm going to talk more about water guns and their design, but first let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. 
and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Let's talk about your classic water gun. So this is pre-Super Soaker, the little squirt toy versions of water guns, the kinds of that you might find in like a dollar store or something. Now, your typical water gun has a spring-loaded trigger, and that trigger activates a lever. That lever, in turn, activates a very small pump inside the water gun. And the pump's job is to pump water from a, a reservoir in the gun, often with these squirt guns, the entire interior of the gun acts as a reservoir. And it pumps the water through a plastic tube and out a narrow path at the end of the gun's barrel where a nozzle focuses the escaping water into a stream. So let's take that step-by-step to understand exactly what's working from a mechanical perspective. So you've got your plastic tube that extends into the water reservoir. If you follow that plastic tube from the reservoir up, you'll see that it leads to a pump. And the pump is a very simple thing. It's a cylinder and it's a piston. And the piston, when you pull the trigger, will move into the cylinder. Now, when the piston moves into the cylinder, it forces water or air or whatever out of the cylinder, right? It can't be in the cylinder. The piston's there. Uh, Also inside the cylinder is a spring. So when the piston enters the cylinder it compresses the spring. And when you release the trigger, it allows the spring to expand to full size that forces the piston back out of the cylinder again. And when that happens, there's a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. So water and or air flows back into the cylinder because it's been left empty by the piston's movement, right? So when you pair this with a couple of one-way valves in those tubes, you have yourself an effective pump. 
So one of those valves will allow water to move from the reservoir into the cylinder. So when you let go of the trigger and the piston is moving out of the cylinder, the pump sucks water up from the tube, but the water cannot flow back in the opposite direction. This is also why you sometimes have to prime the old water pistols. You have to pull the trigger a few times because you actually have to use that that piston to suction water up from the reservoir to go into the pump uh, in order to have it ready to push the water out of the gun. Now, the other one-way valve leads from the pump to the nozzle in the gun's barrel. So when you pull the trigger, it pushes the piston through the cylinder, forces water out of the pump, and the only place the water can go is through this tube, through that one-way valve, and out through the nozzle. Because the other one-way valve blocks the water from going back into the reservoir. Now, because there is a one-way valve right there at, heading to the, the barrel of the gun, that means when you let go of the trigger and you have the suctioning action happening again when the piston is moving out of the cylinder, that one-way valve seals shut. So air cannot come back in through the gun barrel. The only place where the suction can pull anything through is through the reservoir because that one-way valve allows water to go from the reservoir back into the pump. You have to have those one-way valves or else if you were to let go of the trigger and it could just pull air from the barrel, then you wouldn't suction air up out of the reservoir anymore. You could have a full water gun and keep pulling that trigger and nothing happens because all it's doing is pushing air in and out through the barrel of the gun. You have to have that valve there to help seal the system properly. Now, that's your basic squirt gun. Johnson figured he could do a bit better. Now, his homemade nozzle was just one part of his new invention, of course. And Johnson wouldn't work on this all on his own. He would kind of work with another inventor named Bruce Dondrade to kind of get a better squirt gun design. And a big part of it was something that heat pumps deal with all the time, which is pressurizing a fluid. Now, obviously, a toy water gun is not going to create the same levels of pressurization as an industrial compressor in a heat exchange system. That would be bonkers. But a pressurization chamber would provide the oomph to force water out at a high velocity through the nozzle, which means you could shoot streams of water much further than your standard little squirt gun. So the idea was you'd use a hand pump on the gun to pump air into this pressurization chamber, uh, at least originally. Later models of super soakers would actually use water and air rather than just air to build up pressure. Valves would prevent the air from escaping back out. So you would pump air in, but the air could not escape out. And you just keep pumping and pumping until you had essentially reached capacity of the canister. You, you, you could not physically move the, the pump any further. Uh, later on, you would even have fail-safe so that it wouldn't uh, allow you to pump any more once it reached a certain amount of pressure. And that way you would be less likely to break your new toy. When you pulled the trigger, you would essentially open up an escape valve for all that pressurized air that was inside this canister. And the air having a, a path of release would immediately follow it. And there's only one path available because of those valves. It, it would only be able to go in one direction. 
And this escaping air would end up pushing water out of a secondary reservoir in the gun through the nozzle at the end, shooting a stream at an impressive distance. Now, it's a little more complicated than I just described. Uh, So like I said, there are two water reservoirs. The first reservoir, the primary one, is the one you would actually fill up when you would get ready to do battle. You would open up a little uh, 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 tab in the gun. You would fill it up with water and you close the tab in there. That was the primary water reservoir. The second water reservoir would fill up as you were pumping pressurized air into the compression chamber. And it was the water in this secondary reservoir that would actually shoot out the nozzle when you pulled the trigger. So when the pressurized air was released, it was pushing water out through this secondary reservoir, not the primary one. And again, you would use one-way valves to control fluid flow. That guaranteed that fluids would only be able to go in one direction throughout this system. Because if you don't have that, then you just really have a water gun where water is sloshing through tubes but not really going anywhere. Now, Johnson initially looked to self-fund production of his invention. And he gave his daughter a prototype of this, kind of using like a two-liter empty soda bottle to act as the compression chamber. And then he watched as his seven-year-old daughter was absolutely wrecking shot on that Air Force base. She was just dominant in any water gun fights. However, he discovered that manufacturing is a complicated and expensive process. I mean, it costs a lot of money to first establish a production sequence, right? If you're building something new, then you have to go through and and tool that sequence precisely to whatever it is you're building. And that's very expensive. So Johnson didn't have like 200,000 bucks just lying around to fund an initial batch of a thousand super soakers. So instead, he started to look around to see if he could find a toy company that he could partner with. But that took a long time. And you have to keep in mind that while he's doing this, he's also kind of working on stuff like stealth bombers. And so it's not like he had copious amounts of free time on his hands to pursue his dream of making a really cool squirt gun. So his search took seven years. Uh, He happened to encounter a toy company while he was at the American International Toy Fair in New York. He was there with, you know, his, his pitch. and he got some interest from a Philadelphia-based company called Laramie. Now, that company didn't exactly have the best image in the toy world. It was mostly known for making knockoffs of popular toy brands. But Laramie was showing an interest, and that was enough for Johnson because he was not really finding any bites at this point. So he was invited to travel to Philadelphia and to give a demonstration of his prototype, which, again, used like an empty two-liter soda bottle as the compression chamber. So, you know, it it was this janky collection of plastic and tubes and this soda bottle. It didn't necessarily look really polished itself. And the Laramie folks were saying, well, does it work? And then he shot water clear across the conference room and he immediately won the admiration of the Laramie executives and they struck a deal with Johnson. They licensed the design of his invention. And so that was that. That was where Johnson ended up getting this uh, this lucrative licensing deal for his, his invention, which, by the way, he had already patented. Laramie would produce the first model of this, which it wasn't called the Super Soaker when it first came out. Uh, this was around 1990. 
so this model was called the Power Drencher. And I think that's just as awesome a name as Super Soaker. It's not alliterative, so that's an issue. But Power Drencher does sound like it's like it's a, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, but the next year was when the company would rebrand the toy as the Super Soaker, and that name stuck. And it also became insanely popular. Like you occasionally see these trends in toys where a toy will just be like the must have toy of the season. That was what the super soaker was when it really debuted under that name. It was, they were flying off store shelves. People were crazy about them, including me. And I did have an original super soaker, uh, not the power drencher, but when it was rebranded, I did have one of those when I was a kid and I loved that thing. Now, in an interview with the Henry Ford Innovation Nation, Johnson said that it took some engineering to bring all the elements together to make this work. Uh, but it, when you compare it to rocket science, it's relatively simple, which, you know, I got to say, I love that perspective. Hasbro would subsequently acquire Laramie. So the Super Soaker brand would move over to Hasbro. Johnson would head on back to NASA. Uh, he, you know, had worked at the Air Force. He had made a killing by licensing this invention to Laramie and then wanted to continue his, his engineering work with NASA. And then after that, he worked a little bit with Hasbro to bring new innovations and improvements to its line of Nerf guns. In fact, Hasbro would group Super Soaker under the Nerf brand. So you find Nerf Super Soakers these days. Uh, and and it's, that's kind of funny too, because actually when Johnson was a kid, I didn't mention this earlier, but he created a kind of proto-Nerf gun back in his childhood. He used uh, uh, some bamboo to act as kind of like a barrel of a gun, and he used china berries as ammunition, these little soft berry things that grow all over the place here in the southeast, and used pressurized air to shoot them. So it was kind of like kind of like a Nerf gun, just it was shooting china berries instead of little foam darts. And Johnson created his own design laboratory right here in Atlanta, Georgia, called Johnson R&D. And there at the lab, Johnson and his team are researching all sorts of fields, including environmental technology for alternative power generation solutions, which is pretty darn awesome as well. As for the Super Soaker, it would continue to evolve under Hasbro. Uh, Dondrade would incorporate a type of bladder in future Super Soaker water guns, and the bladder would serve both as kind of a pressure chamber and a water reservoir. When you would pump the super soaker that had these bladders in them, it would force water and air into this bladder, thus expanding the bladder. But the bladder was made of very stiff material, and it resisted having this stuff pumped into it. So you would get this compression, this pressurization. That interior pressure would grow, and when you pulled the trigger, it would allow the pressure to escape, and you could you know, have longer pressure with these types of super soakers. So you could fire it a few more times than having to like, you know, pump for five seconds and then fire and then pump for five seconds again. These days, there are actually a, a several different super soaker models. I mean, tons have come out since it debuted in 1990. Uh, a lot of the current super soaker models actually use a, a simpler pump mechanism. Some of them are, are just essentially sucking up water into a pump and then pushing it out in high volume. So in other words, it's working on a very similar principle as those older squirt guns. It's just larger. Your pump is bigger inside these types of guns. Instead of being a little bitty thing that's a spring-activated trigger mechanism, 
it's typically like a, a pump handle mechanism, but it's still, it's, when you break it down, a simple pump and not using a pressurized container uh, like the original Super Soaker did. Others use motorized pumps. So you have like a battery-operated pump that fires the, the water in the reservoir. But all of these got their start thanks to a rocket scientist who just wanted to make a better heat pump. And that's it for this episode. I wanted to give Lonnie Johnson a shout out. The guy is incredibly inspiring. You, If you are not familiar with his work, you'd need to look him up. Um, not just the Super Soaker stuff. He also just comes across incredibly personable in interviews. He is humble and inquisitive and curious and very, very fun to listen to. So I, I highly recommend you check him out if you have not before. And if you would like to suggest a topic for me to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, there are a couple different ways you can do that. One is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. Navigate over to the Tech Stuff portion of that, and there's a little microphone icon there where you can leave a 30-second voice message, up to 30 seconds anyway, doesn't have to be a full 30 seconds, and let me know what you would like me to cover in the future. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.